Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Hey, Jerry, have you ever had to have a conversation that you didn't want to have? Yeah, I'm afraid all too often. I think that's true of all of us, right? Right, Um, yes. Whether it's in our personal or our professional lives, these are just part of life. And it could be a tiny issue or it could be a massive issue. And it is just something that most of us don't do well or avoid. I want to avoid them at all costs. Yeah, a lot of us want to avoid conflict. But especially if you're in leadership roles, you are not going to avoid these. These will be maybe a weekly occurrence that you have to deal with. So what makes them so difficult? Why are they hard? I think we don't want to offend people. We have this hope, I think, that it'll just go away and that the problem will resolve itself, but it rarely does. Inevitably, you have to deal with the difficult conversation. So this is such an important topic that we just must surface the issues that come up related to difficult conversations. And how do you seek a productive outcome? We are so fortunate today to have two experts from the University of Louisville to raise the issues around difficult conversations and try and help us understand, can you genuinely prepare And how do you make it easier to do? And so with that, why don't you introduce Gail and I'll introduce Mary. Of course, I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Gail Rhodes, who is recently retired as a vice provost here at the University of Louisville. So welcome, Gail. Happy to be here. And uh, Dr. Mary Ashlock, associate professor in the Department of Communication in the College of Arts and Sciences. Mary's 16 years at the university is complemented by 15 years as a private business consultant in the corporate world. And so she brings a very unique perspective from the corporate world and the academic world together to help inform how do we deal with difficult conversations. So welcome to you both to Faculty Feed. We're delighted you're here with us. Let me ask a question. Sure. Um, so many times when, when we prepare for these difficult conversations, I've heard people tell us this, and, and I am guilty as well. You sort of lose sleep for two nights before trying to get the exact words right, trying to almost script it out to the point that it makes it even harder because now i got to remember the exact words. i got to memorize the script almost. How do you begin to prepare? What is it that you start doing to get yourself ready to have that difficult conversation? Usually these things are very emotionally charged. You've made up lots of stories in your head around it, but it's really important to think at the end of this conversation, if it's successful, what is it I want to happen? Mary, you have some really good guidance about the tools that are available. So what tools do you equip yourself with before you begin the conversation. Absolutely, I am all about the tools. I, I always say it's almost as though you're walking around with a tool belt yes. and you pull out the screwdriver, the hammer, and they're not all appropriate for no. the same thing. The first tool overall we say is listening, but what does that mean? Listening means you don't say yes, but. Oh, yes. And that whole thing, <laughs> so someone's oh, going, well, listen, yes, but, yes, but. 
but weren't you? And then these leading questions, weren't you, didn't you? They, people think, oh, that's listening, I'm asking questions. No, you're asking leading questions for the answer that you think you want. You listen by trying to use an ended question. Good old what, where, when, how, you know, why was that? All right, and then you paraphrase so they know they're heard. Of all the tools, because you've got many of them, right. how do you know which one to use when? Is, is there any insight you can provide about when do you use what if questions or how do you approach this? Or is there some you use all the time and some you just hold in, in reserve for a special circumstance? You go, I call it probing, where if someone's not talkative, they're not forthcoming at first, you're going to go with the open-ended questions, and you're going to pause. You're going to use both of those tools, and you're going to paraphrase. So you stick with that. Then as they give, you know, someone comes, you know, they give more information, then you use that, and that's when you can say, okay, so now you said this and that, huh? And it's hard because some people, uh, employees, you know, are fearful sometimes of se- because of the trust issue. You know, what you, what's going to happen as sure. a result of my divulging this right. and telling you what I really think? You know, when, when I've had to have these conversations and, and listen intently, uh, uh, two things seem to happen. First, I get some credit for listening from the person I'm, in deal- I'm dealing with. But secondly, I often learn something. I learn something about their perspective, about their own assumptions, about their beliefs and their understanding of what was expected of them. And Unless I ask and then listen, I may never come to that understanding about them. And so I think we have to be open as we enter these things to be, to be willing to say, this person might actually teach me something about the issue. Before I've declared the sentence on them, I, I might actually learn something that would be helpful and may modify what I'm going to suggest we do in terms of a remedy. Your right. perspective is what we would strive to have to okay. say, you know, I, and that's, my, that's our thinking. We all need to learn something from one another. On one occasion, a, a person that I trusted a, a great deal gave me information about another faculty member, and I brought that person in, and I didn't follow the rules. I did not use your toolkit. I also probably didn't know you at the time. Maybe that was the reason. <laughs> and, and I just went, in uncharacteristic fashion, went after this person and, and basically declared the sentence before really hearing all the testimony. And it turns out I was wrong. And the person that had given me the information was wrong and hadn't validated the truth that really was underpinning those assertions. And it was serious. I mean, it resulted in this person leaving university uh, as a result of this thing. Not what they did, but what I did in response to what I thought they did. And I learned a tremendous lesson from that, that you just cannot, you have to go in wide open and either check your facts yourself, that's the best, or be absolutely certain that the person that gave you the information has checked the facts, and then recheck them with the individual involved. And, and boy, that, that burned a hole in me very early on in my time as chair. And, and I think to avoid those tragic scenarios where, where literally somebody's career was interrupted and, and I had to learn a valuable lesson, I, I think that's why these conversations are so very important and the stakes can be so high. And so one of the tools I remember you talked about in, in our leadership course were the use of I statements. So how, how do those figure into these kind of conversations? When you use I statements, you say you can start out just like I just did. When you do something, so Gail, you know, when you said this, 
I, you know, it came across to me like this, and I think this. And so you're, you're describing the behavior. You're saying how it impacted. And that's what we've been getting at at this point, how people are impacted. So when, or let's say when somebody came late to a team meeting, and we're supposed to be meeting and presenting or something, you know, when you came late to our meeting, this is how it came across to the people who were there who we were meeting with. Can you use the I statement to, to reinforce how you feel? Like if someone was late, I felt yes we were wasting time or something like that. And that's the next part. So when you did this, this is how it impacted us, and I felt stressed. Okay. And, and I feel like I don't want to get into this situation again and I and so forth. Or it made me yeah. angry. Yeah, it made you me know, angry. I came prepared to this meeting. Yeah. Right. I expected you to be there. And, you know, we had to start 10 minutes late or start over because you didn't come when you knew it was an important meeting. So help me understand what happened here. Yes. And the key is you're trying to describe a specific behavior instead of going, you're always late. Here exactly. it is again. Right. It's a time. No, no, no. you got to get the always, never, take all those out. When you did this, you know, this is the when you described the behavior. When you came late, this is how it impacted us. I, and I got stressed. So, and then I don't feel like I want to do this again. I would expect the typical response when you go through that and, and use these I statements that way might be for the person you're talking with to become very defensive. And it becomes, but you don't understand, and they want to tell their story. So what do you do when, they, when the defense shows up? How do you address that? I would go right to a paraphrase first. Okay. Gail, would you do that any differently if the defense showed up? No. I think paraphrasing, what I usually say is, now what I heard you say was this. I would often, with my own staff, say, okay, let's practice. What are you going to say? Tell me how you're going to say it, how you're going to phrase it. And that 10 or 15 minutes of practice made them feel so much more confident going in. I love that, Gail. Because, you're, yeah, you're instilling that efficacy where someone can just say, hey, I've got the tools, I have that confidence. You're sharing those tools. Difficult conversations are, are very common in our, in our environments, professional and personal, and, and we start to engage them with these tools. Do you get better at this? Is this something you can practice and get better over time so that next year it's better than it was this past year in, in having these and you don't dread it as much and you actually not look forward to it because no one looks forward to it, but you're, you're better equipped to deal with it. Is that what we can expect if we practice these kind of skills? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. That was my word. Absolutely. Is it going to be perfect? No. Different situations are different situations. Right. You may be emotionally charged. They may be emotionally charged. And that's the key, too, is just as we start out with what Gail said, you have to assess the whole you know, the situational awareness. What's the situation here? Let's process. Let's think through that. All right. Now, how am I going to approach? How am I going to approach the situation? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, a few times when it turns out well, you think, Oh, yeah, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> no, you know. yes. Now, that's not always the case. We know that. So one of the things that we, we do in the leadership class that you guys work with us in is to ask the participants, they get this note from Stacy literally the day you give yes. the presentation. And that's says, great. Oh, yeah. it's the that's day. Great. day oh, of. I okay. It, it I think says, that's I know you're avoiding a difficult conversation right now. So now that you've been equipped and you got the tools and it's fresh, Go do it. And then tell us 
about it. Don't tell me any details, but tell me which tool did you use? How well did it work? How did it go compared to how you expected it to go? And Stacy, what's the most consistent answer we get from these participants? Most of the time, it went so much better than I thought it would. That is so fantastic to hear. Because if you think about it from the physician's aspect, sometimes the difficult conversation isn't with a colleague. It may be with a patient or a patient's family having to be prepared to have a difficult conversation about a health outcome. I've seen where faculty have used this with colleagues, their superiors, staff that work with them. Family members. Family members. Absolutely. And many times we get them to report that they regret delaying so long to have the conversation. And that's why I think this whole discussion that you have with our leadership participants is so important. It's so impactful because they now are equipped in a way they weren't equipped before. I recently had a difficult conversation. It was with my sister and she got upset with me uh, when I was home for Thanksgiving. So I called her and I said, you know, is something going on? She said, yeah, I'm mad at you. I said, okay, well, let's talk about it. Well, no, we have to wait till we're face to face. And sometimes you do. But I said to her, Rosalie, I'm not going to be able to sleep. I mean, that is how conflict affects me. You know, we wasted two weeks of angst and all those things. And I did, I thought about all of the sleep I lost, you know, fearful that it wasn't going to be resolved when I knew in the end it would be. But, you know, having the conversation just made everything so much better. And nine times out of 10, you feel closer to the person. So are there other tools that you'd like to to share with the audience? There are a couple. Remember I said that as you get higher up, you, th- you, know, you think, okay, a what-if question. You know, what if this happened? You know, what if this were to happen? You have to mind your P's and Q's as far as just keeping yourself you know, not emotionally charged. And, you know, well, what would happen if you're just helping someone think through the consequences of their actions? You can also do what I call a timeout where you say, well, similar to what I think Gail was saying earlier, you know, how can I approach this differently? It's almost like a timeout. How can I approach this differently? You're almost stepping to the side in your, your own referee or coach. You know, how can we? And then you step into your role, similar to what Gail was doing with, you know, her sister, because you're, you're aware of where you are in that. And so I'm right. sure you said something like that. How can I approach this differently? And, and you can even say we seem to be caught up, caught up in an argument, you know. Um, is there another approach we can take? You can also say something like, you know, if our organization is moving to more teamwork, you don't get involved. How will it affect you? You're just you're getting these these timeout types of things. Let's think about where we are if you're not continuing it. And I also love this tool realigning, where you say, okay, well let me let me rephrase this or let me say this differently. Because someone will go, huh, what? Oh, and you say, okay, no, let me say this. Let me ask you again. So you're just trying to make sure you're monitoring yourself. No one is perfect. What's the follow-up? Is it important to have follow-up? Because I can imagine the tendency would be, I'm never talking to her again. I don't want to ever see this man again. Yes. Right? So, yeah. but, but it seems yeah. important that there ought to be follow-up, right? Yes. So what, what, how should that work? Well, and you say that as you wrap up. So you hopefully have opened it up and you've said, tell me what I might not know, et cetera. You listen. You're in that listening phase. Then you go discussing. Okay. Started out with what we're going to talk about. I listened to you. I'm going to give you my views. Let's go back and forth. And then how are we going to wrap this up? So you've got to say, all right, let's get back. Let me give you a call at the end of the week. You've got to have that next step. 
it provides some time for reflection for both of you, you on things you might have learned, on things they have now heard maybe for the first time and weren't aware of. I think we all need time to process what happens, and that time out might give you some time to say a week later, two weeks later, a month later. I think the key is that there be some follow-up yes. after that period of time. I totally agree. And and if it's about behavior change, you need more than one follow-up. Yes. And so you assess, I call it the maturity model, the maturity of who the person is and what they're doing. So if their maturity is low maturity, you go high. You go high, I hate to say high control, but it's high follow-up. It's high. Right, right. And so you say, okay, so I'm going to meet with this person. It might be two or three times I'm checking in this week or twice this week, and, and it's going to be a consecutive week after week. If it's someone who has high maturity, you think, oh, this a great person to supervise and so you know you just check in periodically okay give me your weekly update whatever so what do you think because I've had certain situations where you know when I've worked with someone and then I thought it was a really good idea to kind of send a follow-up email like these are the things I heard during this conversation and this is what I is this what we have agreed to do is is even though that's through email, I mean, what do you think about the email versus, you know, face-to-face phone call type situation? Oh, Stacy, I think that is an excellent mm-hmm. thing to do because you've been talking about it. Right. You know, and what you've heard and what I've heard may be very different. So a follow-up is, so let me summarize what I heard and what our next steps are. Do you agree with that? That, I think it's critical to stay on the same page. So I think that's mm-hmm. a great idea. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I'd rather have you do that than start the conversation through email back and forth. Oh, I yeah. agree. So, I can't you know, do that. And in communication, we call that on this, you know, it's, it's the low, you can go really low and email is pretty much at the low and then you go texting and then you can do certainly Zoom, well, telephone calling, Zoom and so forth. But the highest form of communication is face-to-face if you can get it. Difficult conversations abound in the patient care world. It happens every day, and it's not on a schedule that you can deal with. So what advice would you have for faculty who have to be in these situations? What advice do you have to prepare themselves and be able to deliver, really sometimes on a moment's notice, as you're confronted in the hall by the angry mother? How do you help them prepare themselves to be in a mindset that's open to this? Before I was professionally affiliated with Jerry, he was, he was called in to be my daughter's physician in, at Children's Hospital, and luckily she was only there for two weeks. But we had gone through different physicians at this point, one after the other, and, oh, this antibiotic's not working in surgery. Okay, now we're trying some more. It's not working. And then lo and behold, here comes Dr. Jerry Robillet and a resident. I'm not saying it because you're here. You walked in. You had this calming voice looking. Eye contact. We've forgotten to say that. And by the way, non-verbally, your shoulder positioning needs to turn so you're facing the person. Sometimes you're turned away writing. I'm not saying that you're doing that, but other, you know, you can turn away. Your full attention, full respect is looking and, and having some space between you because they're stressed, certainly, but, you know, hopefully a couple feet if you can. Then, if you remember, Jerry and his resident said, well, let's step out in here. And I know that hospital settings are designed with some seating areas, and that is that took us out for a moment, out of the stress zone. 
and we were able to have a conversation and the next plan okay you know first you listen and my husband was stressed out of his mind with his little daughter and I was the communicator trying to analyze it and make everybody happy <laughs> and so you know okay and so and then the resident and the great thing you did too was the resident was was a part of it so you turned to him and he said something and he was calm and so he you're mentoring him and so I'm saying wow we've got two people in our you know and our on our team now on our side so it was just a great that was a great intervention and it made all the difference because that was at a point after things had not worked for a straight seven days whatever it was when physicians and nurses and and, and dentists uh, enter into difficult clinical scenarios and generally we're not called if it's going well they don't need us if it's going right, well. So right. for me, the day on services, I go into room after room with Mary and the angry husband. <laughs> yes. And, and it's worse if the grandmother is there. Then oh. it's really oh, bad. Oh, yeah. Oh. And it's really, oh, really bad. She's on the phone with her buddy, the doctor. And it's just, it gets worse. And so um, what, what I try to do as I enter that, and what I'd encourage our faculty to think about is that as you enter that space, you call it the distress zone. Distress zone, yeah. Sometimes you have to be there because it's in the ICU and you really can't, can't mm, go right. out. What I try to think of is um, that this is a sacred space. And this is work where I get to work like akin to a, a, a priest at the altar, the rabbi in the temple. I mean, this is a very unique relationship where an absolute stranger walks into somebody's room in a very stressful time and is able to bring information, bring a reassurance, de-escalate what is often a tense situation, bring clarity, demonstrate where there's no clarity. These are the things we don't know, and here are the things that we're going to have to work through. And if you approach it that way, then it generally goes better. I just want our faculty to know that the tools are still useful to be familiar with. So then the question is, where do they find these tools? Where will we have them? How will we help our faculty see them? So, Stacey, I'm I'm now looking to you to help me understand. How will they know that they can get to these things and study them if they want? So, University of Louisville faculty will have access to your toolkit and the module based on your toolkit. And so, we have that in our program and resource center. I will provide a link to that in the show notes. And uh, it's going to be great. I love that we're able to share this information with our faculty. Try it out. As, we, as you've heard, people right. say, hey, I tried it out. It doesn't go as bad as you're going to think. It may not be perfect. So first of all, I would suggest that. Then I would say a few minutes is all you may need for an initial conversation. And you don't have to wait till it's a really bad real difficult situation maybe there's something some clarity you need to bring some miscommunication some misinformation so you might want to use that situation to practice open it up exchange information and i promise everyone within three minutes you will have such a powerful impact from that again may not be powerful powerful as you think but it does leave a powerful impact because everything we've said you've addressed the topic you've listened to someone you validated them and then we have something to go on with hey some kind of follow-up and so forth if you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting this is the place to be as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn a great place to work and a great place to invest join us next time for more and come hungry.